the story of psychology based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore with your host, Professor Todd. Part 1. The Ancients. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates. The Athenians. When we think of ancient Greece, we think right away of Athens. Several of the philosophers that we have already discussed consider it the pinnacle of their careers to come and teach at this great city. But Athens was not always so great. It began as a collection of villages in some of the poorest agricultural land in Greece. Only carefully tended grapes and olives provided the early Athenians with a livelihood, that and trade. The distance between the haves, the ruling aristocratic trading families, and the have-nots, peasants working the land, and the accompanying feudal oppression grew so great that it looked like the city and its surrounding area would collapse under the weight. In 594 B.C., the leaders of the middle class recruited a merchant named Solon to accept leadership of the city and restore some peace and prosperity. Solon began by canceling all debts and freeing all who had been enslaved on account of debt. He then proceeded to draft a constitution in which the population was divided into four classes based entirely on economic worth, with the highest retaining the greatest power, but the lowest being exempt from taxes. After a difficult transition, the world's first democracy was established under the leadership of Cleisthenes in 507 BC, when he decried that all free men would be permitted to vote. Now this, of course, falls short of a complete democracy, but don't judge them too harshly. Slavery would not be outlawed until 1814, when Mexico would become the first sovereign nation to permanently ban slavery. The United States wouldn't free its slaves until 1865 with the 13th Amendment. And women didn't get to vote until New Zealand gave them the vote in 1893. It would take the United States until 1919 and the 19th Amendment. So unfortunately, at about the same time the democratic experiment began in Athens, the great Persian Empire to the east decided to expand first into Ionia and then into Greece itself. But in 490 BC, 20,000 Greeks defeated 100,000 Persian troops at Marathon, north of Athens. A messenger named Pheidippides ran the 26 miles from Marathon to Athens to give the Athenians the good news. Hence the sport of marathon running. Unfortunately for Pheidippides, upon delivering the good news, he collapsed and fell dead. In 481 BC, the Persian Emperor Xerxes sent an army of over 2 million men, assisted by a fleet of 1,200 ships, to attack Greece again. This army ravaged the north of Greece and prepared to attack Athens. But when they arrived, 
the Persians found the city of Athens deserted. The Persian navy, however, found the Greek fleet waiting for it at the Bay of Salamis. The Greeks won the day against enormous odds, and by 479 BC, the Persians were forced back into Asia Minor. Now, this seems like just a little piece of history. Consider this. This victory over the Persians allowed the Greek adventure to continue and to produce the kind of thinking that would set the tone for the next two millennia in Europe and in the Mediterranean. During the time period we're talking about, Athens had as many as 300,000 people, making it one of the largest cities in the world. About half of them were free. One-third were slaves, and one-sixth were foreigners. The free adult males who could vote numbered about 50,000. Socrates. Socrates, 470 to 399 BC, was the son of a sculptor and a midwife. Socrates served with distinction in the Athenian army during the Athens clash with Sparta. He was married, despite being on all accounts short, stout, and not given to good grooming. He was a lover of good wine and spirited conversation. His famous student, Plato, called him, quote, the wisest and justest and best of all men I have ever known. Socrates was irritated by the sophists and their tendency to teach logic as a means of achieving self-centered ends, and even more with the sophist promotion of the idea that all things are relative. It was the truth that Socrates loved, desired, and believed in. Philosophy, the love of wisdom, was for Socrates itself a sacred path, a holy quest, not a game to be taken lightly. He believed, or at least he said he believed in the dialogue Meno, in reincarnation of an eternal soul which contained all knowledge. Now we unfortunately lose touch with that knowledge at every new birth. So every time we are born, we need to be reminded of what we already know rather than really learning something new. Socrates said that he didn't teach, but rather he served, like his mother, as a midwife for truth. The truth is already within us, and we need someone to help deliver the truth out from us. Making use of questions and answers reminded his students of the knowledge that is already within them. This is called the Socratic method. One example of Socrates' effect on philosophy is found in the dialogue Euthyphro. He suggests that what is to be considered good is not good because the gods say that it is good, but it is good because it is useful to us in our efforts to be better and happier people. This means that ethics is no longer a matter of surveying the gods or scriptures to look for what is good or bad, but rather the good comes from thinking about life. Socrates even placed individual conscience above the law, quite a dangerous position to take. Now, Socrates himself never wrote any of his own ideas down. Rather, he just engaged his students, the wealthy young men of Athens, in endless conversations. 
Now, in exchange for his teaching, they in turn made sure that he was taken care of. And since he claimed to have very few needs, he took very little, much to his wife's distress. Plato reconstructed these discussions in a great set of writings known as the Dialogues. It is difficult to distinguish what is Socrates and what is Plato in these dialogues. So I'm going to simply discuss them together. Now, Socrates was not loved by everyone by any means. His unorthodox religious views, for instance, that there was only one god behind the variety of Greek gods, gave the leading citizens of Athens the excuse they needed to sentence him to death for corrupting the morals of the youth of the city and for sedition. In 399, he was ordered to drink hemlock, which he did in the company of his students. Plato. Plato, 437 to 347 BC, was Socrates' prized student. Plato came from a wealthy and powerful family. His actual name was Aristocles. Plato was a nickname, referring to his broad physique. When he was about 20, Plato came under Socrates' spell and decided to devote himself to philosophy. Devastated by Socrates' death, Plato wandered around Greece and the Mediterranean and was eventually taken by pirates. His friends raised the money to ransom him from slavery, but he was released without it, and his friends then bought him a small property called the Academias to start a school, the Academy, founded in 386 BC. The Academy was more like Pythagoras's community, sort of a quasi-religious fraternity where rich young men studied mathematics, astronomy, law, and of course, philosophy. It was free, depending entirely on donations. And true to his ideals, Plato also permitted women to attend. The academy would become the center of Greek learning for almost a millennium. Plato can be understood as idealistic and rationalistic, much like Pythagoras, but much less mystical. He divides reality into two. On one hand, we have the ontos, the idea or the ideal. This is the ultimate reality, permanent, eternal, spiritual. On the other hand, there's the phenomena, which is a manifestation of the ideal. Phenomena are appearances, things as they seem to us. And phenomena are associated with matter, time, and space. Phenomena, however, are illusions which decay and die. Ideals, on the other hand, are unchanging and perfect. Phenomena are definitely inferior to ideals. The idea of a triangle, the defining mathematics of the triangle, the form or the essence of the triangle, is eternal. Any individual triangle, the triangles of the day-to-day -day experiential world, the one that you draw on a piece of paper or write on a chalkboard, they're never quite perfect. They may be a little crooked, the lines a little too thick, the angles not quite right. They only approximate 
that perfect triangle, the ideal triangle. Now, if it seems strange to talk about ideas or ideals as somehow more real than the world of our experiences, consider science. Think of the law of gravity. One plus one equals two. That magnets attract iron. E equals mc squared. So on. Now, these are universals. Not just true for one day in one small location, but true forever and everywhere. So if you believe that there is order in the universe, if you believe that nature operates under laws, then you believe in ideas. Ideas are available to us through thought, while phenomena are available to us through our senses. So, naturally, thought is a vastly superior means to get to the truth. And this is what makes Plato a rationalist, as opposed to an empiricist in his epistemology. Plato said that senses can only give you information about the ever-changing and imperfect world of phenomena. So, they can only provide you with implications about ultimate reality, not with reality itself. Reason, however, goes straight to the idea. You remember, you intuitively recognize the truth, as Socrates suggested in his dialogue, Meno. According to Plato, the phenomenal world strives to become ideal, perfect, complete. Ideals are, in that sense, a motivating force. In fact, Plato identifies the ideal with God, with perfect goodness. God creates the world out of materia, the raw material, matter. And God shapes that matter according to his plan or blueprint. Ideas, or the ideal, are the plan and the blueprint. So if the world is not perfect, it's not because of God or because of the ideals, but because the raw materials were not perfect. I think you can see why the early Christian church made Plato an honorary Christian, even though he died three and a half centuries before Christ. Now, Plato applies the same dichotomy to human beings. There's the body, which is material, mortal, moved. It is the victim of causation. But there is also the soul, the soul which is ideal, immortal, unmoved, enjoying free will. The soul includes reason, of course, but it also includes self-awareness and a moral sensibility. Regarding morals, Plato says that the soul will always choose to do what is good if it recognizes what is good. Now, this is a very similar conception to what we have in Buddhism. Rather than bad being a sin, bad is is a matter of ignorance. So someone who does something bad requires education, not punishment. Back to Plato. The soul is drawn to the good, to the ideal, and so the soul is drawn to God. We gradually move closer and closer to God through reincarnation as well as in our individual lives. The ethical goal in life is resemblance to God, 
to being like God, coming closer to the pure world of the ideal. It is to liberate ourselves from matter, time, and space, and to become more real in this deeper sense. So our goal, in other words, is self-realization. Now, Plato talks about three levels of pleasure. The first is a sensual or a physical pleasure. Sex is a great example of this first level of sensual physical pleasure. The second level is sensuous or aesthetic pleasure, such as admiring someone's beauty or enjoying a relationship in marriage. But the highest level is ideal pleasure, the pleasures of the mind. And here would be the example of platonic love, intellectual love for another person unsullied by physical involvement. Now, paralleling these three levels of pleasure are the three souls. We have one soul which is called the appetite, the appetitive soul. Now, it's mortal, and it comes from the gut. It's represented by the abdomen, the groin, the part of our bodies from which pleasure and drives derive. The second level of the soul is called the spirit, or courage. Now, it's also mortal. It lives in the heart, and it's represented by the chest, representing pride or will. When someone wins a medal, that person is recognized by having the medal pinned to the chest. It's recognizing the courage that that medal portends. The third level of the soul is reason. Now, reason is immortal. It resides in the brain. It's represented by the head. Now, these three are strung together by the cerebral spinal canal, with the head being over the chest, being over the abdomen. And a life lived in balance is one in which the will, the chest, controls the abdomen. There's nothing wrong at all with these these needs for being filled, the appetitive needs. Nothing at all wrong with sex, with food, with these drives, but... You don't want to be controlled by them. So instead of having that second piece of chocolate cake, you use willpower. The will, the chest, says the will is in control of the appetites. However, the will can go astray as well. People can become self-centered, seeking only their self-aggrandizement, and so The the rational soul, the mind, is over the will, which governs the appetites. That is the life lived in balance. Now, Plato is fond of analogies. In the analogy of the soul, he describes the appetite as a wild horse. It's very powerful, and it likes to go its own way. The spirit, however, the spirited soul, the chest, is like a thoroughbred, refined, well-trained, directed power. And reason is the charioteer. Reason is goal-directed, steering both horses according to its will. Now, other analogies abound, especially in Plato's greatest work, The Republic. In the book The Republic, Plato designs, and he does this through the mouth of Socrates, designs a society in order to discover the meaning of justice. Along the way, he compares the elements of his society 
what he calls a utopia, Greek for no place. He compares the society, the utopia, to the three souls. The peasants are the foundation of the society. They till the soil. They produce goods. They take care of society's basic appetites. The warriors represent the spirit and the courage of society, and that is why the peasants look up to the warriors and celebrate them for their courage. However, the philosopher kings guide the society, just as reason guides a life that is well-balanced. Now, before you assume that we're looking at a Greek version of the Indian caste system, please note that everyone's children are raised together and membership in one of the three levels of society is based upon your talents, not upon the birth of your parents. So Plato includes women as well as men in this system. Let me leave you with a few quotes. Quote, Wonder is the feeling of a philosopher, and philosophy begins in wonder. Quote, If you ask what is the good of education in general, the answer is easy that education makes good men, and that good men act nobly. Quote, I do to others as I would have they should do to me. Quote, Our object in the construction of the state is the greatest happiness of the whole, and not that of any one class. Aristotle Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC, was born in a small Greek colony in Thrace. His father was a physician and served the grandfather of Alexander the Great. Presumably, it was Aristotle's father who taught him to take on an interest in the details of natural life. Aristotle was Plato's prized student, even though Plato disagreed with him on many points. When Plato died, Aristotle stayed for a while with another student of Plato who had made himself a dictator in northern Asia Minor. He married the dictator's daughter, and they moved to Lesbos, where his wife died in giving birth to their only child, a daughter. Although he married again, his love for his first wife never died, and he requested that they be buried side by side. For four years, Aristotle served as the teacher of a 13-year-old Alexander, son of Philip of Macedon. In 334 BC, Aristotle returned to Athens and established his school of philosophy in a set of buildings called the Lyceum, a name for Apollo, or the shepherd. The beautiful grounds of the Lyceum and the covered walkways were conducive to leisurely walking discussions. So the students of Aristotle were known as the parapetoi, the covered walkways. Now first, we must point out that Aristotle was as much a scientist as he was a philosopher. He was endlessly fascinated with nature, and it went a long way toward classifying the plants and animals of Greece. He was equally interested in studying the anatomies of animals and their behavior in the wild. Aristotle also pretty much invented modern logic. Except for its symbolic form, it is essentially the same as Aristotle taught nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's begin with metaphysics. While Plato separates the ever-changing phenomenal world 
from the true and eternal ideal reality. Aristotle suggests that the ideal is found inside the phenomena. The universals are inside of the particulars. What Plato called the idea or ideal, Aristotle called essence. And its opposite he referred to as matter. A matter is without shape or form or purpose. Matter is just stuff, pure potential, no actuality. Essence is what provides the shape or the form or the purpose to matter. Essence is perfect, it's complete, but essence has no substance, no solidity. Essence and matter need each other. Essence realizes matter. Essence makes real matter. So this process, this movement from formless stuff to a complete being is called entelechy, which some have translated as actualization. This is an idea that we will talk about later in our process as we discuss self-actualization in humanistic psychology. So what are the four causes that contribute to this movement of entelechy, this movement from formless essence to real matter? The four causes are the answers to the question, why? Or, what is the explanation of this? Number one, the material cause. What is something made of? Number two, the efficient cause. The motion or energy that changes matter. Number three, the formal cause. The thing's shape, form, or essence. What is its definition? And number four, the final cause, its reason, its purpose, the intention behind it. Allow me to illustrate with an example. Imagine that we are standing under one of those beautiful covered walkways. We're facing an open courtyard in which there is a tall bronze statue honoring some important individual and the contributions that individual has made. And I ask you, what is the explanation of this? Your answers could come in the form of the four causes. Number one, the material cause. What is the thing's matter or substance? What is the explanation of this bronze statue? The material cause is the metal that it is made of, the bronze itself. Now today we find an emphasis on material causation in reductionism explaining, for example, thoughts in terms of neural activity, or feelings in terms of hormones, and so forth. We often go down a level because we can't explain something at the level that it is at. Number two is the efficient causes, the motion or the energy that changes the matter. So what is the explanation for this bronze statue? The efficient cause, the forces necessary to work the bronze, the hammer, the heat, the energy. Now that is what modern science focuses on, to the point where this is what cause now effectively means. So the modern psychology tends to rely on reductionism in order to find efficient causes. But this was not always so. Freud, for instance, talked about psychosexual energy, and Skinner talked about stimulus response 
the efficient causes of human behavior. Number three, the formal cause. What is the thing's shape, form, definition, or essence? So what is the explanation of the bronze statue? Your response to the formal cause? Because the sculptor had a plan. He had a plan for the bronze, its shape, its form, the non-random ordering of its matter. In psychology, we see some theorists focusing on structure. Piaget and his schema, for example. Other psychologists talk about the structure inherent in the genetic code, or talk about cognitive scripts. These are all examples of the formal cause, the essence of human behavior. And number four, the final cause. What is the end, the purpose, the teleology of the thing? Returning again to our example, what is the explanation of this bronze statue? If you answer in terms of the final cause, you talk about the purpose of the statue, the intention behind making it. Now, this final cause was popular with medieval scholars. They searched for the ultimate final cause, the ultimate purpose of all existence, which, of course, they labeled God. Note that outside of the hard sciences, this is the kind of cause that we are most interested in. Why did he do it? What was his purpose? What was her intention? So in the law, the bullet may have been the efficient cause of death. But the intent of the person pulling the trigger is what we are concerned about. When we talk about intentions, goals, values, and so on, we are talking about final causes. Now, Aristotle wrote the first book on psychology, psychology as a separate topic from the rest of philosophy. And this book was called, appropriately, Parapsyche, Greek for about the mind or the soul. It's better known in its Latin form, De Anima. In this book, we find the first mentions of many ideas that are basic to psychology today, such as the laws of association. In the book, Parapsyche, Aristotle says that the mind or soul is the first entelechy of the body, the cause and the principle of the body, the realization, the making real of the body. So we might put it like this. The mind is the purposeful functioning of the nervous system. Like Plato, Aristotle postulates three kinds of souls, although somewhat differently defined. For instance, according to Aristotle, plants have a soul. The plant soul has an essence which is nutrition. It is a nutritive soul. Then there is the animal soul, which contains basic sensations, desire, pain and pleasure, the ability to cause motion, it is the locomotive soul. And last but not least is the human soul. And the essence of the human soul is, of course, reason. Aristotle suggests that perhaps this last soul, this human soul, is capable of existence apart from the body. He foreshadowed many concepts that would become popular only 2,000 years later. Libido, for example. As from this quote, in all animals, it is the most natural function to beget another being similar to itself, in order that they attain as far as possible the immortal and divine. This is the final cause of every creature's natural life. 
and he foreshadowed the struggle between the id and the ego. Quote, There are two powers in the soul which appear to be moving forces, desire and reason. But desire prompts action in violation of reason. Desire may be wrong. Aristotle foreshadows the pleasure principle and the reality principle. Quote, Although desires arise which are opposed to each other, as is the case when reason and appetite are opposed, it happens only in creatures endowed with a sense of time. For reason, on account of the future, bids us resist, while desire regards the present. The momentarily pleasant appears to it as the absolutely pleasant and the absolutely good because it does not see the future. And finally, Aristotle foreshadows self-actualization. We begin as unformed matter in the womb, and through years of development and learning, we become mature adults, always reaching for perfection. Quote, So the good has been well explained as that at which all things aim.